You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me, from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Gareb and then to Goa. The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east of the as far as the corner of the horse gate, will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. So if you have your Bibles there, please open them to the passage we read earlier, Jeremiah 31. And I think most of us would would agree that we're living in tumultuous times, Uh, that many people look at what's going on in our world and they're they're fearful. I listened to a Yale sociologist and doctor who was commenting on COVID who said that um, he does not expect to really see a whole lot of change or improvement, especially in the economy, till maybe 2024. Uh, And I think the longer we have to be on Zoom and other things, we realize that, that it's not going away as fast as everyone maybe had hoped or desired. Uh, so, so we are kind of living in tumultuous times. Physically, people are concerned for their health. Uh, we talk about people letting down their guard and possibly that's contributing to the recent spike. Um, they've given that name COVID fatigue. You know, people just get tired of keeping up their defenses, being careful. Uh, and certainly there's concerns about our economy, uh, the number of restaurants that have been forced to close, Uh, how it impacts other jobs that can't be done remotely. Uh, And then we find ourselves on the brink of a presidential election. And and all of us are very much aware of sort of how that has 
caused a lot of division within our country uh, and promoted a lot of concerns. Uh, however, in the midst of living in tumultuous times, we need to realize we're not unique because even the people of Israel lived in uncertain times. And so what we need to do is just like them, be reminded of the reality of a coming exodus, of another exodus to come. And so we've been spending some time looking at this theme of exodus, both old and new. So this morning, we're going to conclude our aspect of it from an Old Testament perspective by looking at a passage in Jeremiah 31. Then we'll spend two weeks looking at it from the perspective of the New Testament. And that will lead us right up to the Sunday before Thanksgiving, which is hard to believe, only three weeks away. Uh, and that Sunday before Thanksgiving, we'll, we'll have a time of worship where we focus on opportunities to praise God, as well as look at the subject of, of Christian thanksgiving and contentment. What does that mean uh, in a world that is at times tumultuous? Uh, but looking at Jeremiah 31, uh, a few things of background that might be helpful here. Um, Jeremiah was raised in a small town, Anathoth, which we're told about in the beginning of the book. So he comes from a small town. He spent his life serving God among a small tribe in Israel. Uh, and, and he has an interesting career because his ministry is over 40 years. so a long time. But yet his message seems to be often not favorably received. He was persecuted and imprisoned and beaten for his message to God's people. And, and in the entire book, we only have two records of individuals who responded positively to his ministry. Now, there may have been more, but, but it sort of strikes us in a book that's relatively long. The only two that are mentioned that favorably responded to his message was his scribe, Barak, and then also an Ethiopian eunuch. So Jeremiah knew what it was like to live in tumultuous times. But yet the reason I think he can be called not just a weeping prophet, because his message is a hard one, especially in Lamentations, but more accurately, we should call him a persevering prophet. Because he did keep before him another exodus to come. So look at Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. It simply reads, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so in thinking of another exodus to come, the first main point I want to stress is the condition of God's people. So the condition of God's people merits the reality of thinking about another exodus, another deliverance. That, that is to come, as it mentions in verse 31, the time is coming, implying there's something in God's program that isn't presently reality, but will be. And so what is going on during the days of Jeremiah? Where were the people? What was life like if you were living back in these days? Well, the answer is, is pretty clear. They were living during the Babylonian exile. 
And so remember, you have the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar come in. Uh, they, they, in three separate deportations, they take the best of the people of Israel out of their country, out of their land, and they split them up and divide them and put them into other parts of the Babylonian empire. And they will stay in that Babylonian region in exile for 70 years, all according to God's punishment of them for failing to obey him as they should. So the setting for Jeremiah is the Babylonian captivity and exile. The people have to settle down and live in a strange land, but they're not only living in a strange land, they have no temple, no means to corporately gather together and continue with sacrifices in obedience to God. And so what should strike us is in verse 31, that the reality of this happening in their present circumstances would look impossible. Because God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So you have two houses mentioned, and this may be a little Old Testament history redone, but remember you have 12 tribes to begin with. The kingdom is divided after Solomon's disobedience. And so it's divided into the house of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and then the house of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. So the house of Israel that's mentioned here is the northern kingdom that has 10 tribes in it. That kingdom has already been wiped out and removed from the picture when Jeremiah is writing this. So in other words, about 150 years Prior to the time of Jeremiah, God has brought in the Assyrians to, to simply wipe out the northern kingdom. So in a sense, they are, for all practical purposes, non-existent from the perspective of Jeremiah's audience. So God mentions, I'm going to take that house of Israel, the northern kingdom, and I will restore them. And then he mentions the house of Judah, which would be the southern kingdom to which Jeremiah is speaking to. And it's that southern kingdom that is presently in the Babylonian captivity. Remember that the people of God have no additional books of the Old Testament where they can be certain that they're going to be delivered. That they are know that God has promised some sort of deliverance. Even Daniel is able to look at the book of Jeremiah and know that the time of the captivity and exile is coming to a close, but he doesn't know the exact date. So you see the conditions of God's people prompt them for the message that there is another exile and another exodus that's going to follow the Babylonian exile. Go down to verse 32. And you notice it says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So we have reference to that exodus and crossing of the Red Sea. But then it says, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. And here the present conditions of God's people are directly connected 
to not the failure of God to keep his covenant, but the failure of God's people to honor that covenant. And, and this is important because if you look just before the verses we started with in verse 31, you'll notice verses 29 and 30 in Jeremiah 31 remind the people their present condition and state is their fault. They, they can't claim that there were victims in this, uh, that God did not keep his promise to them, but they did not keep their commitment to God. And so if you listen now to verses 29 and 31, it says, in those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sins. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. What these verses are, are communicating is that the people had used this excuse we're in the Babylonian captivity because of sins our, our previous generation did. They, they were not accepting ownership of their own disobedience. And through the Babylonian captivity and exile, the people would leave with a greater awareness. It was for their sins that they were being punished. And so we see in these conditions that are before God's people, it was not the fault of a previous generation but it was the fault of their own disobedience. And that paints an accurate picture. And I think as we look at that, we can realize that as Christians living in 2020, that, that we also need to be reminded that, that we await another exodus. One that doesn't excuse our present service and responsibilities to God, but because we await another exodus, that should change how we view the present conditions that we find ourselves in. Um, recently, Open Door Ministry, which focuses on ministering to persecuted Christians, um, issued their annual World Watch list. And so this is a list of uh, 50 places in the world that are the most difficult for a Christian uh, to live. Uh, and so in that list, there's 50 countries and nations that make that list. Uh, this year, heading the list of so the top three most difficult places to be a Christian um, are North Korea, Afghanistan, and Somalia. Uh, and, and it just is a reminder to us that although we might sometimes say, well, it's hard to be a Christian in the U.S., that, that in comparison, there are so many other places where the conditions that people in Christ are living under really are no comparison to what we find ourselves dealing with. Uh, and I think you get a taste for this when you go back in the first century and listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 and verses 8 through 12. And in other words, yes, Following Christ can be difficult, and there certainly are trials and things that we face, even in this country, but we should never think our situation is so unique that it makes following Christ impossible. So in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, uh, again, a, a church located in the midst of a, a city that was like any modern city today, uh, with all of its ungodly philosophies 
and practices. In 2 Corinthians 4, he writes this in verses 8 through 12. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, persecuted, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life at work in you. Now, I think the reason Paul could say we're persecuted but not perplexed, we're, we're downtrodden but not without hope, is because Paul also knew that there was another exodus to come. Uh, and that will even be further revealed as we look next week at some glimpses in the New Testament. But let's go back to Jeremiah 31. So now we know what the conditions are that they're living under. Uh, that this hope for another exodus is now clearly brought out in Jeremiah 31 and 31 and following. And now we move to our second point, and that is the certainty of a second exodus. So the conditions of God's people set the stage for them to hear once again the certainty of a second exodus. And so you see the beginning of verse 31, where the Lord declares I will make a new covenant. Uh, this is the only time in the Old Testament that you have a reference to the new covenant. Uh, Ezekiel speaks of the same covenant, but he doesn't call it the new covenant. Jeremiah, the persevering prophet, is the only one who specifically speaks here in the Old Testament of here is a new covenant that the Lord will declare. Uh, and you can't help but miss as you kind of read through these verses, how the emphasis is on this will be a work of the Lord, because it keeps saying, I will do this, or they will now be my people as a result of God's covenant that he is going to establish with his people, uh, which is built on that very beginning covenant, starting with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. But let's, let's take a look at the contrast here between the previous covenant and this new covenant. So you notice in verse 33 in particular, uh, it says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And there we have this contrast between the covenant made in the Old Testament to this coming covenant, this new exodus and covenant to come. So notice that one is more external. I mean, the Old Testament, they received the law from Moses. It came from outside. This new covenant will be written in their hearts and in their minds. You go down to verse 33. It says, I will be their God. They will be my people. 
this new covenant will eventually bring about permanent fellowship and communion, unbroken fellowship and communion. Whereas the history of Israel in the Old Testament is scattered with that covenant being broken by God's people because of disobedience, where they are walking with God and then they're not walking with God. This references here the fact that this new covenant will be one that will usher in perfect fellowship where we will be with God and we will be the people of God. And then verse 34 reminds us that this new covenant, this second exodus, which will come in different stages or degrees, will bring about complete knowledge of God, that, that they will know him. And we think of other places in the New Testament where it speaks of there will be a day when we will know as we are known now. And then finally, at the end of verse 34, uh, this forgiveness of our sins. A forgiveness which in the Old Testament we know is there's this temporary covering. The sacrifices, the act of the high priest, as we learned last week on the Day of Atonement, the tabernacle, the temple, were all temporary means to cover the sins of God's people, always pointing to this ultimate new covenant that would come in Jesus Christ. And looking way ahead to a time in which all sin will be done away with. It's interesting that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 8 clearly quotes Jeremiah 31 through 34 and applies it to Jesus Christ as our great high priest. Which again fits the threads together when Jesus said, this is cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. So you have this, this connection here being made between different exoduses that will come, acts of deliverance in the Old Testament that are pointing to what Christ would usher in that in many ways is yet still to be completely fulfilled because we do live in a tumultuous world. We live in a broken world. We live in a world where we too experience the consequences and reality of sin. But then as you turn and look at verses 35 through 40 in Jeremiah 31, that the certainty of this second exodus, this new covenant is established by God himself. Uh, and so if you look at verse 35, you see three verbs that, that stand out. He appoints the one who decrees and the one who stirs up the sea. The Lord Almighty is his name. So the word appoints there means to set up, establish. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 1 when God is creating light and the sun he appoints it he sets it in place and then the other two verbs to speak of what god commands what god moves and brings into action and so the title lord almighty may be rendered in some bibles as he's the lord of hosts uh, yahweh sabaoth that that he commands all the armies of heaven 
And so you have the certainty that this new covenant, this new exodus is going to happen. And think of how reassuring that would be to Jeremiah's present audience who are in Babylon, who are in captivity. And God is saying, my word is certain. And he bases the certainty on that on his own character. In other words, for, for God not to keep his word in this passage, it tells us what would need to happen. In other words, all of these things, the sun, the moon, the stars, the sea, all of that would need to disappear for God to not keep his promises, which we would read that and say, well, that's not going to happen. And that's the point. These things will not happen. Therefore, God's promise of a second exodus is going to be fulfilled. And his people can count on that because it is guaranteed. You look at verse 37, it says, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. Now we're amazed at how far science has come, how much more we know about the universe from clearly the days of Jeremiah, and yet nowhere in our present scientific research is anyone close to saying that they think we found out everything there is. In fact, the more science discovers, which God allows that to happen, the more science is telling us how complex the universe is, how vast it is, how it is so much bigger than we ever thought possible. Charles Darwin, the father of evolution, uh, was known as saying that someday he thought that we'd be, open, be able to open up the black box, the cell, and we could explain everything. Well, science has opened up the cell and we figured out there's so much more there, so much more complexity than we ever anticipated. And so once again, this verse reminds us, will there come a day when the heavens will be thoroughly understood by man? Absolutely not. And because that won't happen, God will keep his word. But then you get to verses 38 through 40. And in this future second exodus that is guaranteed, uh, that will point us to the ultimate exodus, that you have an example of prophetic telescoping in these verses. Uh, what that is, is where you have many times Old Testament prophets will describe a series of events back to back, but, th but they're actually separated by indefinite periods of time known only to God. And so if you look at verse 38, it mentions some strategic locations in verses 38 and 39, the Tower of Hananel, the Corner Gate, Gareb, Goa, that, that these are literal places. And in fact, the people of Israel will be delivered out of the Babylonian captivity. God, God will bring them out of that captivity. They will experience an exodus in their not too dear distant future. So within a series of times, they will come out of Babylon. Cyrus, God will move on the heart of King Cyrus, a Persian king, to, to actually make him be empathetic 
toward the people of Israel, not just allow them to return to Jerusalem, uh, but, but even assist them in that process. As you know, from the book of like Ezra and Nehemiah, so they will be delivered from that captivity. They will go back to the land, not, not all of them. Ironically, many of the people of Israel will choose to stay in Babylon because they feel comfortable there. But those who return to Jerusalem, the temple will be rebuilt. The wall around the city will be redone. So they will experience a second exodus. But it's clear in that environment the new temple does not compare to the previous temple. And, and that, that this isn't the final destination of where God wants to take his people and where he even wants to take his church. Because as you look at the end of verse 40, it speaks about this place will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. And if you know your, your history, you're very much aware that the temple, the second temple that is rebuilt, which is part of this second exodus, only will remain standing until 70 AD, and then the Romans will destroy it. And so clearly this part of the verse is looking way ahead to what we might say is the, the ultimate Exodus, the, the new city of God, the new heaven and earth uh, that we will dwell in as believers in Christ. And so you have this unfolding scene of what it means as God is going to be faithful to deliver his people. And so as Christians looking back through Jeremiah, through what Christ has done for us, we rejoice in seeing God's faithfulness to his word which then should encourage us that there is another exodus, a new exodus uh, that is going to be completed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I think it's that awareness and that connection that we see in scripture that, that should affect how we live and conduct ourselves in the world that God has placed us in. And this is very clear if you listen to the words of Peter uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Paul goes into a, or excuse me, Peter uh, gives an explanation of the day of the Lord. And, and what will this day look like and what's going to accompany it? And, and after discussing that, you get to 2 Peter 3 and verse 14. And you have Peter now applying that, knowing that there will be this ultimate deliverance in Christ, the end of all things, the completion of that entire plan of salvation that began with Abraham, that continued through the days of Jeremiah, is presently still being unfolded. What impact should that have on us? And he simply says this in verse 14 of 2 Peter 3. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. In other words, the reality of another exodus, a second exodus, should affect how we live right now. That as Christians, we desire to be holy, to be set apart unto God, uh, to be blameless, 
and to live differently because we know what God has promised he will do. And we can say with the same certainty that he said to Jeremiah that these things will happen because he has appointed the sun, the moon, and the stars, and because nothing in his character will change. And so I hope that changes just even how we go about the week that's before us, whether you're watching the, the surges in different counties, to keep your focus on the one who is the author of all exoduses in scripture. Let's pray together. Most high God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your promises are certain and how important it is for us to cling to that promise when sometimes our circumstances look different, when sometimes the reality of this sinful world challenges the certainty of your promises. But thank you that we have the history of the Old Testament to confirm these things. And so I pray for each one of us in Christ this week, that we live above this world, that we have the peace that passes all understanding. And may, Lord, we seek to live lives in a holy way, in a blameless way, through Jesus Christ. And now may Christ keep each of his children holy and blameless. May he sanctify you through and through in anticipation of that final exodus that we await. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.